0: We live in a love story set in the midst of war. Love is our destiny and all hell is set against it. Really, it explains so much. We wake each morning and find that we have to fight our way back to all that is true. Fight off the thousand reasons to settle for less than the life we were created for. Our bodies awaken, but then our hearts and souls must awaken too, so that we might play our part in the grand affair. I'm Alan Arnold and you're listening to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. This is the sixth and final session in our series titled Love and War. It's based on the book by John and Stacy, And today they talk about really how marriage is based on a thousand little choices. Not just epic, big choices, but the everyday choices. They talk about healing and they talk about forgiveness. This is from chapter 12 of the book titled learning to love
1: be imitators of god and live a life of love saint paul some marriages make it and some marriages don't the odds are still running about 50 50. the chances in favor of a happy marriage are even more slim because as you well know simply the fact that a marriage has not fallen apart does not necessarily mean its members are thriving Anybody can fake it for the Christmas photo. Many marriages survive by settling into soul killing numbness, by using the distraction of busyness, as in raising children, or by tacitly agreeing to live separate lives while sharing the same roof. When rated on the marital bliss scale of 1 to 10, the majority of still intact marriages hover around a 3 getting by. Some marriages carry on as violent, damaging maelstroms. But there are couples who find their way to something beautiful, truly beautiful. We pray that you will be among them. And we believe that if you will embrace the help offered here and stick with it for more than a couple of weeks, more than you stick with your diets, exercise, or savings plans, You have a much higher chance of joining those who have found their way to a beautiful and powerful marriage. But there is no guarantee, of course. You know that as well. So why bother? Why risk it? Why throw yourself wholeheartedly into such a dangerous, costly, and uncertain enterprise? Measure your answer carefully. Because I know that he or she will change is not a good answer for you don't know that if this is your reason you will forever take your cues from how your spouse is doing you will become manipulative and demanding you will lose heart because god wanted us to get married and so i know he will make it all work out maybe but be careful what you claim god has promised you most of the christian couples now divorced or living unhappily together thought god was in their union too that he has not seemed to rescue their marriage, has shaken their faith like a rag doll. Because I promised to. This is closer to a very good answer. You did make your vows, after all. Taking those vows seriously will help you through years and years of hard times. They might even see you through to the end. Though many a good man and good woman find that those vows do not provide everything they need to remain fully engaged in their marriage. Being married to someone you know will never leave you and yet no longer truly loves you is not exactly what God had in mind. We're not trying to be discouraging. We're trying to be realistic. This is a love story set in the midst of war. Marriage is a crucible, the gladiatorial arena for love and war. It will eventually expose every broken place in you. It will reveal your every sin, if only before the watching heavens. Your commitment to self-protection will be confronted daily. You will be disappointed, and you will be wounded. You will most certainly be tested. There may not be a greater test of character on the planet. It begs the question, why in heaven's name would anyone throw themselves wholeheartedly into such a dangerous, costly, and uncertain enterprise? Because that is the kind of person I want to be. Now that is a very good answer.
2: We are made for love. I've been reading a book written by a young soldier who fought through all four years of World War II. He saw the main action in Africa, Italy, Normandy, and Germany. A sensitive and thoughtful young man, he knew what terrible effects war has upon those who have to fight it. He opens the book with a letter he penned while at the front. The last few weeks have been hard, filled with many bitter, hateful things and only a few short, happy interludes. Sometimes I feel very old. We have been a long time in the line. I have come to the extremity of knowing beyond all doubt that there is no other way for me to survive this period except the hard Christian way of finding the finer points in my associates and loving them for those characteristics. The bare, cold, prophetic words of Auden, we must love one another or die, have rung in my mind on several of these frigid, sleepless nights of late. Perhaps even you cannot participate enough in this life over here to fully understand. You would have to see a fine, fine family broken, people you would learn to love destroyed because of petty personal grudges. You would have to see people slapped and beaten because they might be telling a lie or because certain sadistic impulses need to be satisfied. You would have to see old men and women on the roads with a few pitiful belongings in a driving rain going they know not where trying to find shelter and a little food in a scorched earth area. Oh, you would have to see many things to know why I should come to realize such a primitive truth as that I have only one alternative to death, and that is to love. Glen Gray, The Warriors. I found his letter bracing, like a plunge into a cold lake. Prophetic, too. Honest truth from a life stripped of pretense. His thoughts came to me at a critical time. The past 12 months have been especially painful for us, not, thank God, as a result of wounding each other, but through wounding in relationships very close to Stacy and me. Things have been very hurtful. We have been a long time in the line. Here in this love story, set in the midst of war, the battle seems to be heating up and the effects of living under the assault of evil take its toll. Love seems foolish. It seems perfectly reasonable to hunker down and guard against further hurt. And then I read the soldier's words, and I thought of Jesus' warning about the end of the age, how as times grow dark and people feel more keenly pressed, love will grow rare. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Matthew 24, 7 and 12. These are trying times for all of us. I venture we will see even more trying times. But the soldier was right. Auden was right. We must love one another or die. Because love is what we are created for. It is the reason for our existence. Love is our destiny. Love God and love one another. These are the two great commands upon the human race. The secret to life is this. We are here in order to learn how to love. It is really quite an epiphany when the truth finally strikes home. It might be the most liberating realization we ever come to. We are here in order to learn how to love. It is our greatest mission of all, our destiny. Though it is one of the most basic of truths, this epiphany seems to come to few of us or rather, it seems to be accepted by few of us. Most people remain committed to other things as their primary aim in life. Happiness, survival, revenge, success, whatever. When a soul comes to accept the fact that they are here to learn how to love, that the course they have been enrolled in is learning to love 101, it is as if the sun has just dawned for the first time in their life. All of these years they have lived underground, and now they have stepped out into the open air. This is how I became a Christian. I was 19 at the time. My high school years were marked by the drug abuse and sexual license of the late 60s and early 70s. It left a hollow ache inside, and I began a spiritual search. Then Jesus just showed up one day. He really did. I can recall the evening. I was sitting in my bedroom thinking about how desolate my life was. All my relationships were manipulative and dishonest. There was nothing true about them. My epiphany was simply this. I saw with utter clarity that I was not a loving person. I saw myself clearly, and what I saw was brutish, selfish, almost subhuman. I did not like what I was becoming. To be unloving is to fail at the very thing we were created for. It is a rejection of the essence of our existence, a rejection of the love that made us. As George MacDonald confessed, I am a beast until I love as God doth love. And so I turned to God that night, turned to him both for forgiveness and for healing. I asked Jesus to heal my life and help me become a loving man. That is how I became a disciple. I enrolled in his school of loving. I think you can fairly easily sort out the people who have come to this epiphany from those who have not. There's something different about their approach to life, what upsets them, what makes them laugh, and especially the way they handle people. These folks may not have named it, but a shift has taken place. It nearly always comes through a painful disruption of some sort. They discover that their style of relating is an absolute disaster. They might have lost someone dear to them. Sometimes it comes with illness, the shock that their days really are numbered, and what will they live for now? The epiphany might arrive, as in my case, through a revelation of our own utter selfishness. It most often comes through some kind of encounter with God. He lives to love. And if you hang around Jesus long enough, it rubs off on you. However it may be delivered, The epiphany is the realization that life comes down to this above all else. We are here to love. This is the great shift, the most fundamental realignment of our heart's ambitions. It strikes at the very core of sin in us. It is not a dismal thing at all. Those who have made the shift are among the world's most joyful people. They are truly free. I think of friends who have decided not to marry. Of those who are married but have decided not to have children. They are fundamentally selfish. There's just no other description for it. It isn't rocket science. They figured out that life is easier when fewer people depend on you. I think about marriages we know and the couples that aren't doing so well. Both parties seem truly stunned. It's more than a disappointment, they seem completely taken by surprise. Their reaction betrays what they believe the story is all about. I'm not happy. You're not making me happy. When you do that, you make me unhappy. In fact, you are making me miserable. Now, we both understand the legitimate disappointments and the very, very deep sorrow to be unhappy in your marriage. It is worse than being unhappy almost anywhere else in the world, even in prison or stranded on a desert island because there you have some hope of release or rescue. You hope for a way out. But in marriage, there is no way out but forward. As Mike Mason wrote in The Mystery of Marriage, when the prison door of love clangs shut, the only thing to do is to become more in love than ever. There is just no other way to get out of it. But still, The basic complaint reveals a fundamental flaw. You married in order to be happy, didn't you? That is how God got you into it. Then he uses marriage to realign you to his purposes. Oh, there is happiness. Gallons of it. I am embarrassed by how much happiness we've known. It's simply that the happiness awaits your realignment to the purposes of God. No matter what you are told ahead of time about marriage, It does not matter one bit until you are in it, until you have lived within marriage for some time, and then you begin to understand. It's sort of like trying every key on a large ring of keys to see which one will open the door to life. The one labeled, My spouse will make me happy, doesn't seem to work. The pretty one called, Happy little home, doesn't work either. The gnarled one named, Protect yourself, doesn't fit. Huh, well, I'll be doggone. There is only one key here that opens the door, and it's this one. I am here to learn how to love. Huh, it's the last key most of us try. But it opens the door all right, and then we can get on with actually living our lives. A Thousand Little Choices Don't you wish life had a soundtrack? It would be so helpful. If some Alfred Hitchcock, Freddy Krueger, creepy theme song began to play as I step into my house, I would be so much more ready to believe that spiritual warfare was real. If suddenly Josh Groban began singing in the background, I would know that romance was coming. If I tuned into a tense, throbbing, born-identity-type theme song, I would know something dangerous was taking place. If it was time for me to be brave... I would pick up my cue with panache if the theme song to Gladiator began to play. Wouldn't it help you to realize that you really do live in an epic if your life had a soundtrack? Instead, all I hear right now is my neighbor's snowblower. It just doesn't have the same effect. I think we all look for love to come in dramatic ways. We know love is powerful and beautiful. How come it doesn't feel like it? Love plays itself out in what seems like such unremarkable ways you pick up your socks you ignore her snarky comment you put the toilet seat down but this is exactly what makes it epic the fact that love plays itself out in a thousand little choices unseen and without supporting soundtrack that's what makes it so beautiful
1: a few years ago john's parents reached their 50th wedding anniversary To celebrate, we took them to Mexico for five days. The house we shared sat atop a hill overlooking the Sea of Cortez. Lounge chairs, hammocks, the sound of waves. It was gorgeous. But I'll tell you my favorite moment, the most beautiful sight that I was privileged to take in. I don't know much about John's parents' marriage. I have a picture at home of a beautiful young woman laughing while sitting on the lap of a very happy young man. This was taken during their first year of married life. There was real love there. You could see it. But then the years piled up and life became hard. Things didn't go the way they dreamed or imagined. Their life was hard, painful. John's dad's health has been steadily failing for many years. He is now forgetful. He can be impatient, sarcastic, crotchety, a real curmudgeon but he has had one faithful companion who tends to him, pays attention to him, and cares for him, his wife. Here was the moment. We were going out for a nice dinner this particular evening, and Patricia had gotten herself ready. She is still a lovely woman and carries herself with style and grace. Bob was sitting in a chair, impatient to leave. Not yet, Bob, she kindly said. And then she got down on her knees before him and helped him put on his new navy blue tennis shoes and carefully tied the laces. An ordinary, simple act that she has done for him hundreds, maybe thousands of times. An act of such tender, unspoken, sacrificial love that it brought tears to my eyes.
2: Sometimes it is simply a touch. I was feeling a little bristly this morning, like a pine cone with something to be resentful about though I didn't know what it was. I simply was not feeling all that loving or lovable. Now, Stacy loves a hug in the morning. I know it brightens her day to be touched lovingly first thing when she comes out. I did not feel like offering that. I was not in full retreat mode, just bristly. Before she came out into the kitchen, I turned my back to watch some deer out the window. All spines. Stacy came up from behind and lovingly touched me. What a beautiful choice on her part. The bristles fell away, like blowing on a dandelion. This is difficult to write because so many of these decisions are secret decisions, in that your spouse does not see them. These decisions are made between each of us and God. So to write about them feels uncomfortable, like telling secrets, letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing, or something like that. But we share a few in order to help you see how this might play out in your life. Our friends Craig and Lori were driving home to Colorado last weekend, returning from Los Angeles, where they'd spent the holidays with their children. They'd been gone two weeks, and it had been a lovely time. Now they were headed home. I'm a stable horse, Craig confessed. Turn me toward home, and I just want to get back to the barn. Most guys can relate. Miles are something to be conquered. Stopping is a form of surrender, especially when the semi you passed 40 minutes ago Lumbers by while your wife lingers in the restroom. But Lori wanted to stop for lunch in Santa Fe. She loves cooking, and Santa Fe has some wonderful cafes. It was also tantalizingly close to home, only five hours left of the 18 hour drive. Besides, vacation was over. They had had a lot of nice meals in L.A., it was time to get home. Craig took Lori to lunch in Santa Fe for two hours. I'll run to the store. We can watch your show. Yes, you can dim the lights. No, I don't mind if you go out tonight. Would you like a little of my cookie? We meet these moments every day. This morning, we had to get down to an event for which we were the keynote speakers. Stacy and I had agreed last night that we should leave the house at 8. It is now 10 after 8, and she is not ready. She is futzing in the bathroom. It's moments like these that reveal what really fuels us. Hey, you were the one who said, hey, let's go. Why am I tweaked? What is with the compulsion, the anxiousness? Isn't it really about wanting to get on top of things, making sure we make a good impression? It is godless. I'm thinking about my reputation, not my wife's heart. So I sat at the kitchen table, finished my oatmeal, had a cup of tea. I simply waited until she came out and said, I'm ready. And I didn't even get in that little dig, men savor. Finally, these are the little choices we are making every day. We are learning to love.
1: I'm sorry. A happy marriage is the union of two forgivers, Ruth Bell Graham. I never wanted to be overweight. I did not wake up one day and say to myself, I know what burden I'd like to bear. Being seriously overweight, that will be my cross. Nor did I ever long to have the pain of passing by a window or mirror and feeling utterly ashamed. Many women know this shame. I hated that I was embarrassed of my body. Going out for a business dinner, meeting acquaintances of John's, Speaking at an event, I felt I was an embarrassment to him and to the ministry God had given us. Oh, I knew that other women were valuable regardless of their personal struggles or appearance. I understood that every other woman had something of incredible beauty to offer the world, but I could not see that for myself. Every event, every outing, Every vacation, every party, gathering, meeting, every single time I left the house, I took with me my shame and embarrassment, my self-accusation and loathing. Why couldn't I just keep my mouth closed? Where was the spiritual discipline of self-discipline? My inability to lose weight and keep it off was hurting my husband terribly and even wounding my children. Was it my fault? No, and yes, I did not want to be hurting them. I was trying to lose weight, hard. My failure was all bound up in deep woundedness, spiritual strongholds, and sin. Did I intentionally wound my husband? Absolutely not, but I hurt him nonetheless. Did I, rather, do I still need to ask his forgiveness for how I have wounded him? Yes, I think I do. And this is hard for me to do. I want to place the blame on everyone else. It's because of the wounds I received as a child. I want to blame the enemy. It's all his fault. Oh, dear. I am sounding just like Eve. Lord, have mercy. I need to own up to my part, and I need to ask for my husband's forgiveness. I really do care more for his heart than I do for my own. Realizing that I have hurt him is painful, but I have to take the next step and apologize to him for it, specifically. I need to go to him in love and tell him that I see that I have hurt him, confess that I am deeply sorry and ask for his forgiveness. Hurting my husband hardens his heart toward me. I lose his trust. Brick by brick, a wall is slowly built up between us, owning my part. Acknowledging the pain I caused, repenting, and asking for his forgiveness will hopefully bring that wall down. Failing to love my husband well does not mean I am a failure. Hurting my husband does not mean I am a hurtful person. Sinning against him, or anyone else for that matter, does not mean my true identity is as a sinner, as a child of God. I am holy and dearly loved. I am not a sinner, but a saint. And by the way, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are too. I have a clean heart, a circumcised heart. My body is now the dwelling place, the temple of the living God. My identity is not up for grabs. It is settled. I belong to God, and every single thing He says about me remains true. It is because of his amazing love and because I believe what he says about me, to me, that I am able to face my sin and failures and not turn into putty. You just don't get through this broken, fallen, war-torn world without doing damage. A lot of the damage you don't even know you have done because it's coming from your own unconsidered style of relating. The cumulative effect of your sin and brokenness and the cumulative effect of your approach to life over decades, dear friends, has had an effect on those around you. It is an effect you probably need to ask forgiveness for.
2: I was asking Jesus just the other day, what do our readers need, Lord? What do their marriages need? And what he said was, healing. So I asked, how is the healing going to come? And what he said was, forgiveness. If there is to be an awakening of hope and desire, it is going to come through forgiveness. If there are some new frontiers in your relationship where you can talk about difficult things, handle conflicts differently, or approach sex differently, it is going to come through forgiveness. We have done a lot of damage over the years, all of us. It will be the dawning of a new day and a very healing moment. As we begin to ask forgiveness of one another, simply sit down together and say, I know what I need to ask forgiveness for, if you do. Or simply to ask, what's it like to live with me? What has been the effect of my style of relating on you over the years? Has it caused you to lose hope in certain areas of our life? I really want to know, and I really need your forgiveness. That would be so extraordinarily healing. Now we know, we know, this sounds like jumping out of an airplane. Something in you is shouting. There is no flipping way. I'm not opening Pandora's box here. All those wounds, those issues, we never really resolved. Are you crazy? We understand the fear. But dear friends, you can't ignore this. Eventually the buildup of all those offenses, great and small, shut a marriage down because our hearts shut down. Part of us, anyway, shuts down, checks out, or catches a bus out of town. It is never going to change, and they don't seem all that concerned about their effect on me. I'm just not going to desire anymore, not going to have any hope. You don't want your spouse coming to that conclusion. So you can't just blast past your impact on your spouse and hope for good things ahead, just as you can't in your relationship with God. You know your intimacy with God is hurt by your sin your indifference, your unbelief, your habitual addictions, in order to draw near to him, in order to recover the relationship, you have to say, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I want to be close again. Lord Jesus, come near to me. Forgive me for that outburst, that indulgence for ignoring you for weeks. I really do love you. This is essential to the spiritual life. And you know also that this is not a one-time thing. Our love with God is nurtured by forgiveness, healed by forgiveness, recovered through forgiveness over and over and over again. Your spiritual life can't go anywhere without forgiveness. Marriage can't go anywhere without forgiveness. We need to bring the healing grace of forgiveness into our marriages. And what this looks like is sitting down together and putting something on the table. Honey, I think maybe this, and now you need to be specific, has been doing damage, and I'm only now realizing it. Or asking your mate, what's it like to live with me? What's the cumulative effect been upon you? And if you are fortunate enough for your spouse to take the enormous risk of telling you, do Not do further damage by explaining it away or defending yourself. Well, now, hang on a second. You've got your issues too. Or, that's not what I meant at all. You took that totally wrong. Listen to what they have to say. Acknowledge the weight of it. And then you say, sweetheart, I hear you. I am terribly sorry. Please forgive me. Timing is important. You want this to go well. When do you broach the subject? Talk to God about that. Pray beforehand. Pray hard. And what follows is equally important. You don't want to sabotage the healing by repeating the very thing you did that caused you to ask for mercy in the first place. Your spouse needs to see real change. They need to see some conscious effort on your part, or the enemy will be there in a flash with all the old agreements. You see? Things will never change. Forget it. It's not worth it. Calm down. Take a deep breath. We know this sounds like a root canal without Novocaine, but God is with you. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are secure. You just have a little making up to do. The ultimate reason. I'm sitting here writing this last chapter, blending Stacy's words with mine two days before our deadline. Suddenly, I'm aware once again that loving cuts right across the grain of my life. I don't want to go ask forgiveness. I just want to get on with my day. We have reached a peace accord. Wouldn't it be better to simply let sleeping dogs lie? It certainly would be easier and easy looks really attractive. The coward in me is having a fit. Once again, I am so keenly aware that the way of love is going to require a different way of life for me. Man, this is costly and dangerous. I hear the call, take up your cross. Coming to me from over the hills, as if from a distant land, another kingdom another choice to die to my self-protection, my self-centeredness, my way. And so I find myself wrestling with the question we raised earlier. Why in heaven's name would anyone throw themselves wholeheartedly into such a dangerous, costly, and uncertain enterprise? For wholehearted is the only way to live, and the only way love is really going to work. I do know that. My answer has changed Over the years. Yes, this is the man I want to be. That is part of it. The integrity of living well is so restoring, so deeply satisfying to the soul, it is almost addicting. Yes, I take my vows seriously, even though I had no idea what I was saying when I first took them. But there is something deeper that calls to me, something richer I have tasted, which compels me to let go of the life I keep rebuilding in order to learn how to love. I want God. Can you name a better reason? There is simply no other fountain of life. There is no other waterfall of joy. God is the happiness we seek. This is what the scriptures are trying to get across to us. Everyone who has known God and has written about it down through the ages agrees. But it is a truth you pay dearly to finally possess for yourself. There is no other happiness than God, wrote Pascal, and ourselves united to him. But boy, oh boy, is there happiness once you have God. David tasted friendship with God after trying everything else and came to the conclusion that your love is better than life. Psalm 63, 3. Better even than life. Meaning, I would give up my life in a heartbeat in exchange for the love of God. Most people hear words like this, and they are not quite sure what to make of them. It's a difficult thing to identify with if you haven't tasted for yourself how utterly good God is. It's like friends telling you about their trip to Switzerland or Kauai. The more impassioned they get, the less it seems to help. All they can do is show you a few photos and urge you, you really ought to go there and see for yourself. The Christian life is like the chapel of San Vitale in Ravenna. On the outside, the place is not that impressive. It could pass for a library. But inside, it is absolutely breathtaking. Byzantine mosaics cover the walls. Vaulted ceilings are inlaid with gold. Arches upon arches, engraved marble floors. It is like stepping into another world, a fairy tale. They built it with the carpenter from Nazareth in mind. On the outside... He's not exactly your American idol, but inside, he is the most engaging person you will ever meet. He will take your breath away. I know this to be true, and I want more of him. Now, to find God, I have to look where God is. This might help folks who report that God seems distant, or, as a friend recently commented, with a touch of cynicism, he doesn't seem to come around much. If I want to find a hawk, I look up in the sky, near the mountains where the thermals create an updraft. If I want to find our dog, I simply have to find Stacy. He is usually curled up at her feet. Those who want to find God must look where he lives, must live in the same manner for the same things, for the same reasons. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. 1 John 4:16. Every time we choose to love, we take a step closer to God. It is like He is right there. Every time we choose something else, we take a step away. I want God, so I choose love. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Stacy more than ever. Sometimes it scares me how much I love her because my heart feels so utterly out there, so entirely vulnerable. You step out that far and you know you are opening yourself up for hurt. Love anything, C.S. Lewis says, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken, possibly being an understatement. Then we read the scriptures telling us to love one another as God loved us, and if you hadn't made the connection yet, that trail leads to a crown of thorns. Oh, it does not come easy. Falling in love is how God gives us a push in the right direction, but then we have to choose. And we are going to need a very compelling reason to lay down our lives day after day, year after year, to make those thousand little choices for the thousand and oneth little time. Something needs to compel us. What could be more compelling than this? When we abandon ourselves to love, we find ourselves closer to the one who is always doing that himself. We find God. And then we discover A great surprise. One of the mysteries of life runs like this. You do not find health by making health your aim, nor do you find happiness by making happiness your aim, nor does joy come to you because you go out looking for joy. You find all of those things only if you make something else your aim. When you find God, you find all sorts of wonderful things. He made Eden, after all, and gave it to us like a wedding present. The world is created for romance, music, vineyards, sunsets, a kiss. Drink deeply, lovers. That is the kind of person he is. He made our hearts, too, and he gave us to one another. He wants joy and life for us abundantly. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Psalm one forty five sixteen. Like stepping inside the chapel of San Vitale, stepping into God, I have found a dazzling life. I have a battle to fight now, as great as any man could ask for. I have adventure upon adventure. I have a stunning beauty to rescue. And you recall what happens after the rescue. Stacy has what every girl dreams of. She has someone to fight for her. She has a great adventure to share. She has more and more beauty to unveil. What joy passes from this partnering with God to see your spouse become more whole and alive and free.
1: Yes, loving costs everything. Look at the cross. But loving is always worth it. John and I have been married over 25 years now, and I can honestly tell you that it just gets better and better. I loved him with all my heart when I married him, but God has enlarged my heart as well as my love. It has cost me. It has cost John. It continues to, but so does every great, priceless, beautiful treasure that is worth having. I can't even begin to name all of the joys I've known through being married to John. They are the highest and the deepest of my life in God.
2: We live in a love story set in the midst of, Of war. Love is our destiny, and all hell is set against it. Really, it explains so much. We wake each morning and find that we have to fight our way back to all that is true. We have to fight off the thousands of reasons to settle for less than the life we were created for. Our bodies awaken, but then our hearts and souls must awaken too, so that we might play our part in the grand affair and God has made our hearts in such a way that nothing awakens us quite like some great mission which is ours alone to fulfill. Thus, the power of fairy tales, all of which turn on this awakening in the heart of the boy and the girl. I expect this year will hold a number of battles. I imagine we will face down many demons together. We will probably worry unnecessarily about our sons. Despite our best intentions, I'll leave my clothes piled on the floor, and Stacy will tell me where to turn. I'm also looking forward to all the joys that lie ahead. We laugh a lot these days. I'm hoping that we make it back to the Tetons, and maybe even get to Italy.
0: That brings us to the conclusion of the Love and War podcast series, but not the end of what's available for you. In this series, we've only gone through half the chapters from the book. So I encourage you, dive deeper. Get the book or the book on audio and listen to the entire message. Then set a few evenings aside to talk about it with your spouse. You can also go through the Love and War DVD series. It's ideal for group use. So get a few couples together and go through that. Talk about it. Spend time in the message. If you're a member of the Ransomed Heart Tribe, That series is available as a digital download at no additional cost. And you can also give love and war to couples whose marriages you want to encourage, perhaps even rescue. There is so much more, so stay in this. We invite you to come back next week to the Ransom Tart Podcast when we start a brand new series. I'm Alan Arnold, and you've been listening to the Ransom Tart Podcast.